so excited to have expanded Valley Beit Midrash from our Phoenix Scottsdale home here into the greater Denver Jewish community and to be actualizing our three pillars with all of you of uh, adult pluralistic Jewish learning, of Jewish leadership development, and of our, um, our social action, bringing all that into action. We, I see many of our, our new fellows here tonight. It's great to see them and some students from CU Boulder they brought along as well. Welcome. <laughs> Um, and, and we're thrilled to, in addition to BMHBJ, have started a partnership with Temple Emmanuel uh, and with HEA. It's great to see Rabbi Dalin, Tammy Dalin here tonight, um, and all of you. And um, so please, we hope to continue learning together and building community together. And you will hear more about this, both our virtual and in-person programs that we'll be doing together. And part of what we're working to respond to is the crisis that, are, that was demonstrated from a recent University of Michigan study that showed that in America over the last few decades, the capacity for empathy has dropped 40%, 40%. And so we are trying to say, how do we engage the power of Jewish learning to not only ensure Jewish continuity, but ensure that moral imagination and we can be a part of bringing repair and understanding to society. And nobody better than Rabbi Tulishkin as our kickoff educator to move us in that direction who Rabbi Yaakov Chaitovsky is going to introduce tonight. So. Thank you very much. I first met Rabbi Telushkin uh, long before I actually met Rabbi Telushkin. He was the co-author of a book called The Eight Questions People Ask About Judaism. By the time I met him, the book had expanded to the nine questions uh, people ask. And it arguably is one of the most intelligent uh, guides to the, why Jews think the way they do, and it's an excellent introduction. I know of very few rabbis who do not use that particular book as a starting point. Rabbi Telushkin also happens to be the author of uh, perhaps the greatest selling and most popular series uh, in all of Jewish literature for here in America, Jewish literacy. The most important things to know about the Jewish religion, its people in history, Jewish literacy gave way to biblical literacy and a host of other books, some of which are for sale in the back and he'll be able to sign them. If you purchase them, he'll actually sign his full name. Okay. Rabbi Telushkin's book, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, How the Words You Choose Shape Your Destiny became a motivating factor in an attempt to get a Speak No Evil Day on the national calendar and those who are involved here in Clean Speech Colorado, uh, for which Rabbi Telushkin has spoken in the past, um, will know the impact of a particular book and that particular uh, idea. Uh, he has a legitimate New York Times bestseller. He wrote a book called The Rebbe, or just Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. It's a very insightful, a touching uh, and uh, wonderful biography of the impact of the, of the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, on the world. And one of the other early books that made its way into my bookshelf and should be on yours as well was out of print for a long time. It's called Why the Jews, the Reason for Antisemitism, the Most Accurate Predictor of Human Evil. The, most, the latest edition of the book, which deals also with uh, the threat of EDS and anti-Zionism slash anti-Semitism uh, was cited by Rabbi Harold Kushner 
as the wisest, most original and provocative book on the subject I have ever read. Telushkin's book of Jewish values, a day-by-day -day guide to ethical living was a subject of a PBS special entitled Moral Imagination that aired throughout the United States. He was ordained at my alma mater, Yeshiva University. And I understand he's working on a book currently about moral imagination. So we're gonna get a glimpse into the mind of what Talk Magazine has hailed as one of the 50 best speakers in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very warm welcome to Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. It's wonderful to have been introduced by two rabbis who are both friends and who I have very, very high regard for. And I love being back in Denver in 95 and 96. My wife, Devorah, and I actually lived for two years in Boulder. And we loved it. And, you know, we were obviously coming into Denver all the time. Baruch Haitovsky mentioned an interesting thing. My first book was a book that I co-authored with my friend Dennis Prager called Eight Questions People Ask About Judaism, and we self-published it. And we sold over 30,000 copies, at which time Simon & Schuster uh, decided to bring it out under their imprint. And they said to us, okay, but we wanna encourage some of the people who bought the first edition <clears throat> to maybe buy this one, so add on a question. And so, the book had been called Eight Questions People Ask About Judaism. So we added on a question, which was, and then the book became The Nine Questions People Ask About Judaism. But what's interesting is it came out in 1981. Does anybody want to hazard a guess what we might have added on as a question? It'll surprise you because we tend to think of it as a more contemporary issue. And we added on was, is there a difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? And, you know, that's become such a, sort of, you know, more type of controversial issue now, uh, but it really was already then, because remember it was, I think in 73, uh, that the UN passed the resolution of Zionism as racism. But today I'm speaking about the issue of moral imagination. I'm gonna start with a story that reflects moral imagination. And it's a, it's a very surprising story and it's an extreme example. Of course, we're talking about an instance that not only involved imagination, but tremendous courage. Uh, but then I wanna show how it can be more applicable in all of our lives. It was a number of years ago, I came across a very unusual story about a woman that was told by Schiffer Penzias, who told it about her great aunt, Sussi, who was in Germany. Her and her family had not left when Hitler came to power. And so in the mid thirties, Jews were still living in Germany and still were allowed a certain amount of participation in German life. So she was on a bus. And suddenly two SS officers, no, it was not SS, it was two Nazi officers board the bus and they start examining everybody's papers. And Jews were told to get off the bus and go into a truck that was around the corner. She's sitting in the back of the bus so she knows it's gonna be a, a few minutes till they get to her, but obviously she was petrified and tears started to come down her cheeks. And the German man who was sitting next to her politely said to her, why are you crying? And she said, because I don't have the papers you have, I'm a Jew. He started to curse her. He says, you stupid bitch, I can't stand being with you. The two 
Nazi officers rushed over and said, what's going on here? And he said, it's my wife. She always forgets her papers at home. I can't stand being around her anymore. They left and left the bus. The woman never knew the man's name. Obviously, that's a story that involves extraordinary courage, but also it involves extraordinary imagination. You see, wanting to be a good person is wonderful, but you don't, but we all know of people who want to do good things and end up doing things that are harmful. And we all know that many people give up in the face of a situation that doesn't seem really to have any solution. But this man, and my daughter Shira caused me to think about it, is it that this man was not only gutsy, but it, did he think so quickly? I mean, because we can imagine, I would assume there were other people on the bus who were not happy with this. It's not like all Germans wanted terrible things to happen to Jews. Uh, enough did, but you know, not the whole people. And, but of course they felt they were in an impossible situation. This man though thought differently. So did he come up with it so quickly? Or Shearer said maybe he had been on the bus another time when he'd seen something like this happen. And maybe he started wondering what would he do or what could he do if such a thing happened? I mean, it was such an ingenious way in how he reacted. And it of course made me start thinking what would happen if we used our intelligence and our imagination to their fullest extent. And then a few years later, I read a story and obviously most of the stories you're gonna hear now do not have quite the drama of that story. But I was reading a story about Yosef Soloveitchik. Yosef Soloveitchik happens of course to be the name of the rabbi whom I was ordained by Yeshiva University, but this story is not about him. It's about his great-grandfather for whom he was named. And his great-grandfather, who was Beis Halevi, who was a very big scholar, was once sitting with some of his students. And it was shortly before Passover. And a man came in and said to the rabbi, I have a question. And what's his question? He said, is it permissible for me to use milk instead of wine at the Seder? So the rabbi said, is it a health issue? And the man said, no, I can't afford the wine. The rabbi gave him 25 rubles. The man left and one of the students of the rabbi said to him, 25 rubles? He needs three rubles, four rubles. And he said, don't you understand if he wanted to use milk at the Seder, it means he has no money for meat. He probably has no money for anything. And that story really struck me yeah, sometimes people need more than what they're asking for. And then by coincidence, if indeed this was a coincidence, there was a very extraordinary woman, I'm gonna call her Esther, but she was a very, very, an elderly woman. And she was a Holocaust survivor who had really remained pretty much poor throughout her life. And she was a very beloved friend of Devorah and mine. I have here my son-in-law, Ben who's married to my beloved daughter, Naomi, who, who, who will know very quickly who I'm talking about. And uh, 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 maybe a week after I had heard this story about Rabbi Soloveitchik, she was at her house as she often was, and she was complaining about her back pains, which had been bad, but which were getting worse and worse. And I finally said to her, is there no medications that could help it? And she says, yes, but even with government assistance, those medications cost, will cost me $60 and I can't afford it. Devorah and I gave her that night a check for $1,000 that we're unusually generous. I think we're generous, we're not unusually generous. But if not for that story, I wouldn't have done it. 
Obviously, I would have given her the $60 to get the medicine. But that story just expanded the way I thought. If this woman is in such terrible pain and she doesn't have $60, who knows what else she's depriving herself of? So again, moral imagination just expands the way we think. And once again, I found myself struck by the ability of what this rabbi had done to uncover a moral, a moral solution that did not you know, occur to others. And this really began, began the book. What would happen if I could hunt up, sort of wanted to hunt up the stories if we've had such advances in the last century in medicine, science, technology, all of which came about because people used the full resources of their intellectual imagination to solve problems that were thought to be insoluble. And look at the advances, but people rarely devote the same efforts to moral problems that seem to be insoluble. And in fact, they often shrug their shoulders and think that nothing can be done. But I really started to realize a lot can be done. The book, as I hope when it comes out, I'm in the process of writing, on, writing it and I'm working on it with my, daughter, with my daughter, Shira, will very, very much rely on stories. And I'll tell you the reason. I once came across something written by Eric Metaxas. Metaxas wrote a wonderful biography of one of the great hero, heroes during the Nazi period, which was uh, the Protestant theologian Bonhoeffer, who ended up unfortunately being hanged, but who was a very, very great man. Anyway, but Metaxas was very convinced of the importance of stories and he expressed it so well. You can talk about right and wrong and good and bad all day long, but ultimately people need to see it. And the stories I started to collect were stories that would challenge our instincts about what actions we can give in any situation. Some of the stories offer perspectives that are surprising and some deal with very well-known personalities and high stakes situation, but guess what? We can also learn from them. How many of you remember the Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm? It's amazing, you know, because most Congress people are not so well known. Shirley Chisholm was known for a number of reasons. Number one, in fact, I have occasion to write about her in my book on the Rebbe because she actually had, which I'm not gonna get into in this speech tonight, but she actually had occasion to have an, an amazing interaction uh, with, the, with the Rebbe of Chabad. But here's an interaction with somebody who's gonna be even more surprising to you. Chisholm was the first black woman ever elected to Congress. She was elected in 1968. She uh, represented Bedstuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant, an area, uh, in, you know, a, a well-known black area in Brooklyn. And in 1972, she enters the Democratic presidential primaries. There were seven people pursuing the Democratic presidential nomination that year. The one who eventually got it was George McGovern. But at the other end of the political spectrum of the seven, and when I say his name, you'll probably remember that he ran for president, was George Wallace. George Wallace was probably the most well-known public racist. I mean, you know, because most of us don't know names of people in the Klan, but he, you know, he was famous for saying segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And if any civil rights protester ever lies down in front of my car, that'll be the last car they ever lie down in front of. In 1972, he's running for president. 
and at a campaign event that he was having in Baltimore, and he was getting a surprising amount of votes. He was getting about 13% of the vote, you know, which was an alarm, well, from my perspective, alarming. I suspect on this, we, most of us will share. And all of a sudden, a man named Arthur Bremer, I don't think it was ever clear exactly why Bremer did it, started shooting him. And five bullets actually hit Wallace, all in the lower half of his body, and he became paralyzed. And obviously had to go through a long period of recuperation. He's in a hospital in Baltimore. Three weeks later, Shirley Chisholm walks into his hospital room. Wallace is shocked. He says, Shirley Chisholm, what are you doing here? And she says to him, because I don't see what happened, I don't want what happened to you to happen to anybody. And she took his hands and Wallace actually had tears in his eyes. The event is attested to because Wallace, Wallace's daughter was there and they prayed together, both of them in their own way as Christians and they prayed and spoke. And after a period of time, you know, the nurses came and said she had to leave, you know, Wallace needed more rest. Wallace's daughter said that that event started him on the process that led him to become an anti-segregationist. Two years after that event, Chisholm introduced a bill in Congress that for the first time, minimum wage laws should also apply to domestic workers. You know, maids never had minimum wage laws apply to them. Wallace lobbied Southern congressmen to vote for it. And of course, three years after that, he showed up at the Baptist Church in Montgomery let me see if I can give you the exact quote. And he gave the following speech. And, and when you remember what Wallace had stood for, it makes it all the more remarkable. I have learned what suffering means. In a way that was impossible, I think I can understand something of the pain black people have come to endure. And I know I contributed to that pain and all I can do is ask for your, all I can do, he didn't say, I can only ask for your forgiveness because he tried to do more than that. The late Congressman John Lewis, who was of course part of Martin Luther King's inner circle said at the time, I could tell that he was a changed man. He acknowledged his bigotry and assumed responsibility for the harm he had caused. He wanted to be forgiven. By the way, this is also very, very important because it sometimes happens now in the United States that people will apologize for something that they did and people with very strong political views on the right or the left don't really appreciate the apology. They just see the apology as being proof that they had really done something wrong. You know, and we're not always being that forgiven. By the way, I just want to throw in one line which is just nice. One of the most precious photos I have in my house is a photo of John Lewis holding a copy of my book, Rebbe, because John Lewis was one of two congressmen who sponsored the resolution to give the Rebbe the Congressional Gold Medal. And who did he sponsor it with? Newt Gingrich. When the bill was introduced, Newt Gingrich said, this is probably the first time John Lewis and I have ever agreed on an issue. So it also shows the power of things that can bring people together. Anyway, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who's an African-American Congresswoman now in California, at was a woman in her 20s and she was working on Shirley Chisholm's campaign. 
And she was outraged that he had, she had gone to Wallace. How could you do that? And Chisholm said to her, we're, always, we're all human beings. You have to be optimistic that people can change. You have to be optimistic that one act of kindness can make all the difference in the world. I think that was part of what motivated Chisholm, but I think there was something else that shows her real moral imagination. I think what she understood was that when you're in a real conflict with somebody, you can't often just go. If a week before George Wallace had been shot, she had knocked at his door, he would have just viewed it as some sort of political stunt. He probably would have said something obnoxious. He was capable of saying very obnoxious things. People are different when they are vulnerable. And she understood that, that to George Wallace, who had now been so badly hurt and so deeply lowered and knew that for the rest of his life, he was gonna be paralyzed from the waist down, might be open. And that's the important thing about doing things and waiting for people to be vulnerable. Shlomo Riskin, the well-known Orthodox rabbi from New York who then made Aliyah, told me of an instance where there was a man in his congregation when Riskin was just in the early years of establishing the congregation. Later on, he was such a prominent presence, his leadership couldn't really have been challenged, but in the early years, it could. And the man was making all sorts of allegations and and it was very similar to the George Wallace story. He then had a, a, seri a serious heart attack and Riskin showed up at the hospital. And he said, you're my enemy, Rabbi. He said, you've hurt, and Riskin actually said to him, you, you're the meanest person I've ever encountered, but I want you to know I am praying for your recovery with all of my heart. And it started the process by which they connected. So one act of kindness, and I, I say it, I'll tell you one of the reasons I'm saying this. And how many of your families at the level of first cousin and closer, so that means close relatives, are there relatives who are not on speaking terms? How many? Okay, now more. <laughs> the longer I wait, the more hands <laughs> as we start reviewing. You know, who knows what could have happened if, and you know, and sometimes it gets to the point people don't go to a funeral or, you know, and, or do a whole host of distancing actions that make the situation get, you know, even worse. And, you know, and then the, in the next generation, you'll ask the children or the grandchildren, yeah, why did they stop speaking? And nobody knows. You know, very often it, it's for no reason. So always view the moments of vulnerability uh, can do very great good. But by the way, I'll just tell you about another act of kindness because I'm sort of, as you can imagine, I'm sort of collecting them. And my email is jtolushkin at aol.com. If any of you have acts of moral imagination, if you send them in to me and I use them, I will quote you by name, uh, if you want to be quoted by name. Uh, and I, I would love to assemble it. Uh, you know, sometimes people send me stories that I already have, but I just want to point that out. But I, one of the people I sent uh, some of my writing to is an old friend of mine named Jerry Zucker. Jerry has been, is a movie producer uh, and director. His, his first movie, which he did when he was very young, was a movie called Airplane, you know, oh. which became this famous comedy. And then, uh, uh, and then he also did a movie called Ghost, you know, which is a remarkable movie. That, how many of you remember that film? Okay, so you remember it. Okay. Anyway, Jerry said, I don't know if this fits for your book, 
But I, it's a story I so like. Great. I'm 73 now and my memory is not what it used to be. The actress who was in Pretty Woman. Julia Roberts, okay. So Julia Roberts was in, a, a, right, it's very impressive, I can't, yeah. And I was thinking of something, the president, wait, what's his name? No, okay. No, the, uh, I was thinking, okay, so he told me a story. He later on produced a movie called My Best Friend's Wedding. The movie was shot in Chicago. And Jerry grew up and his family is in Milwaukee. And as he often did, he invited his parents to come to the set, you know, because Milwaukee is less than 100 miles from Chicago. So obviously he introduced them to Julia Roberts. She said nice things about, about Jerry. And then she said, let's take a picture. And so she stood, but she stood with Jerry's mother. Jerry's father, who was Shire, said, no, you and Charlotte take the picture. I don't want to. So they take the picture and then Julia Roberts goes and puts her arm around Jerry's father and says, maybe you don't want a picture with me, but I want a picture with you. And so they took another nice picture. 15 years later, his father unfortunately was struck you know, with some mental deficiencies and had deteriorated. And his mother came and posted that picture near his hospital room said all of a sudden he was getting so much attention. Everybody was wondering, how do you have a picture with Julia Roberts with her arm around him? And Jerry said to me, I am convinced that because of that photo, my father got better medical attention than he would have, he became suddenly a slave. You know, so an act of kindness like that, you know, can certainly reverberate in ways that we, that we you know, can't imagine. But it, I'm not only talking about actions on a grand scale. What about people in leadership positions? And I'll tell you a story that a man I know, a friend of mine, Nate Levine, he's a businessman from Dallas. And he told me of an incident that happened in his business. Uh, he was looking over the financial records of the business and something wasn't clear to him. So he picked up the phone and he called the company's accountant whose office was just down the hall. I have a quick question, Nate said. I don't understand something you wrote here and just wanted to. And the man answers in a very snappy tone. What do you mean I don't understand? He said, well, I was wondering how you arrived at this number. And he said, I can't help it that you don't understand what I did. And he barked back and he actually hung up the phone. Nate remembered the thoughts that ran through his mind. I was insulted by his abusive tone, by his rude remarks. And as I played the conversation over in my head, I found I was seizing. Fiery scenarios of retribution flared up in my mind as I tried to think how I'd reprimand him or maybe just fire him on the, stop, on the spot. So he was thinking about the exchange as he stormed down the hall. When he reaches the accountant's office, he flung open the door. The man startled, turns around and is glaring back at him. And Nate says to him, I just want you to know that I found the way that you responded to me on the phone to be improper, incredibly impolite, and I've decided that I know what you need. So the man responded in anger, yeah, what do I need? And he walked over to the man, embraced him and said, you need a hug. To Nate's astonishment, the man choked up and actually started to cry. And he immediately apologized and revealed that his wife was very, very sick and that he was under terrible pressure from many directions. And that when Nate called, he was very tense and he didn't know how to handle the question. If you want me to do it over, 
uh, I will. Standing with him, Nate recalls, he's quite a remarkable man. I was able to see our previous exchange from a different perspective. The pressures on him had reached such a level that he no longer cared about the consequences of his actions. Maybe his confrontation with me, his employer, was some sort of self-sabotage. Whatever the case, my reaction had caught him completely off guard and diffusing this bu bubble of negativity. Would this technique work with every employee or in every relationship? Of course not. In some cases, the person's initial insolent reaction would have been a true reflection of an arrogant character. And had that been the case, Nate would have been right to offer a sharp rebuke or maybe fire him. But when someone reacts to you in an ugly manner that is utterly uncharacteristic of their normal behavior, for you to respond with equal anger, particularly if that's your only response, is unfair and morally unimaginative. There is always time to burn bridges. And Nate, knowing that this was so uncharacteristic for this man, realized even as he was ragefully walking down the hall that the situation called for fairness, not firing the man. Of course, that didn't mean that he shouldn't tell the man as he did tell him that his behavior was improper, incredibly impolite, but then he hugged him. And what was the result? I never had another problem with him. The man remained my employee for another 30 years. I showed him that I cared. I gave him a chance to explain his behavior and it forever changed our relationship. When I said to you earlier about family fights in which people are no longer on speaking terms, I wonder, sometimes these feuds have lasted forever, if one party had simply given the other a real chance to explain the hurt behind their behavior. I'm very good friends with an acting uh, direct, with an acting coach in, uh, in Los Angeles. I, I have, a, I have a, had a part-time congregation for many years, the Synagogue for the Performing Arts. So I've met you know, a fair number of people in the industry and Howard Fine has really been a very prominent acting coach. And he told me something interesting. When an actor is invited to try out for a role and they don't really know the actor, the actor he said should almost never pick a scene that involves anger because he said, you don't have to be a great anger actor to feign anger. Almost all of us, if we had to play a scene in which we were angry, could probably stir up within ourselves all those emotions and, you know, and, and really do it. I know I certainly can, and I think many of us can. He said the only time, the only time it's worth doing a scene when you're angry, where you show great anger is if you can show the hurt behind the anger. And, you know, and that, that insight of his really, uh, you know, just very, very deeply affected me. And so I wonder how many family fights that have sometimes lasted for years could have been adverted if one party gave the other party a chance to explain themselves and then gave them a hug. Or if we hear stories like that, how can it, how can it affect us when we're doing things? I've tried to examine in the research I'm doing for the book you know, a whole variety of different areas, you know, a morally imaginative way of approaching inconveniences. There's a story they tell about Gandhi. I, I'm gonna have a chapter I think I'm gonna call uh, apocryphal or accurate. This story still has a lot to teach us. So I don't know if this is an accurate, but they tell a story about Gandhi that in the 1920s, he needed to catch a train and the train had just left the station but was moving very, very slowly. So he started running after the train. People saw him, they probably recognized him. So they pulled him up onto the train 
And as they pulled him up, one of his sandals fell off. Gandhi got up, and as soon as he was able to stand on his feet, he took the other sandal and threw it in the direction of the first sandal as far as he could. And they were all looking at him in puzzlement, and Gandhi said, what good is it going to do to the person who only finds one sandal? Such stories enter our minds, hopefully influencing us on the way we move through the world, always with the eye towards if there is any good, we can salvage from a situation. I also am going to give some examples of the book of what happens, I think, when people lack moral imagination. And obviously, I don't want to pick on minor figures, but I'll give you two examples from just one person. He's not the only one I'm going to examine. And I'm very careful before I do it. You know, I make care, you know, I don't want to offer an example that reflects, in my opinion, badly on a person if it was not characteristic of the person. And the example I'm going to offer is Immanuel Kant. Kant is in any, in any survey of great philosophers, is always acknowledged as one of the five, you know, greatest of all philosophy. You hear Aristotle, you hear Socrates, and of course, you're going to hear about Immanuel Kant. Kant, in my view, did not have moral imagination. And he didn't have a real sense of empathy, the very trait which I think is the most necessary for leading a moral life. So I'll give you an example. Kant believed in capital punishment, which in limited instances I think is justifiable, but in limited instances. Kant had two exceptions. One, I think most people, whether you are pro or anti-capital punishment, I think most people would agree with somebody who kills somebody in a duel. Because you could just as easily argue that in a duel, it's also an act of self-defense. You know, it's too, you can argue that dueling is stupid. You know, the old Jewish joke, a Jew's challenged to a duel in the 19th century and he's forced to accept, but he says, but if I'm late, start without. <laughs> but the other exception that Kant had, if a mother kills her own child, if the child was born out of wedlock, anybody here under the age of 40 who's heard that expression out of wedlock, you know, which I grew up knowing that meant an illegitimate child. And I remember once reading an opinion of a, a judge in 1928, there are no illegitimate children, there are illegitimate parents. But in any case, but if a woman gave birth, an unmarried woman, which you can see, and what was Kant's reason? Well, he didn't want to see such a woman punished. Listen to this. A child that comes into the world apart from marriage is born outside the law for the law is marriage, and therefore outside the protection of the law. It has, as it were, stolen into the commonwealth like contraband merchandise so that, the, so that the commonwealth can ignore its existence and can therefore also ignore its annihilation. I'm not gonna go into this in great depth, but the idea that there are certain people who are not entitled to live is basically what he's saying there, and guess what? That, I'm going to call that chapter Immanuel Kant's two unintended gifts to the Nazis. The other one was Kant argued that it is always forbidden to lie, literally. And to show that he meant it is always forbidden to lie, he went so far as to offer the case, if you see somebody pursuing somebody with the intent to kill him, and he asks you where the victim, his would-be victim, has gone, you are forbidden to lie to him. Guess who else that? was very helpful to. Cicela Buck, a, a contemporary philosopher in her book called Lying, says there is no question that Kant would have told an officer on a ship who was, let's say, smuggling Jews and stopped by the Nazis, 
if they asked them if there were any Jews on the ship, would be forbidden to lie. It's, I think, just very, very important. I'm just going to offer, an, I have no idea how long have I been speaking. No, I know, but tell me how long have I been speaking. Okay, how much longer can I go? Okay, 20. Okay, I'll do 20 more. Okay, and then for those who are interested, I want to do a review. Many of you are familiar that there are 613 laws in the Torah. Maybe we'll do a review. <laughs> Maybe we'll wait until Shavuot, when we're supposed to study the whole night. Okay, I want to give examples that can be useful to people in their own life. So here's an example when a friend makes a mistake. How do you criticize without destroying a friendship? All of us at one point or another have had friends or people we feel important do something that we really think is wrong. And how do you react to it? So I'm gonna give you an example out of public life. The Jewish community basically had a pretty good relationship with Ronald Reagan when he was president. Uh, and there were two issues. Once when he wanted to sell, I'm forgetting the name of those planes to Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia you know, was in the group that wanted to destroy Israel. And the other time, of course, was in Bitburg. What had happened was the president of Germany, in order to, it was now 40 years since World War II had ended. It was 1985. And, you know, Germany ever since World War II had a, was not, was stigmatized pretty negatively in much of the world. And so to symbolize a real rapprochement, he asked that Reagan on an upcoming visit to Germany visit a Nazi cemetery at Bitburg. And Reagan accepted. A little investigation revealed that among the soldiers buried at Bitburg were not just regular German soldiers, but uh, several dozen SS officers. Now, remember, until, I mean, remember, there's no reason why most people would know this, but until 1943, the SS, which really carried out the worst acts of the Nazis, were all volunteers. People were not drafted into the SS. They went into the SS willingly. In the latter part of the war, after 44, they, they were drafting people. So Jews, needless to say, were protesting very vigorously. Uh, a number of veterans groups were protesting very vigorously. And it so happens during that period, by coincidence, Elie Wiesel was getting a medal from the president and he spoke there. And, uh, you know, and in his speech, he, he, he spoke respectfully to Reagan. He said, but that place, Mr. President, is not your place. Your place is with the victims of the SS. And he did that in a public speech. I, had, I knew Wiesel somewhat, and I had occasion once to ask him in an interview, were you nervous before you said that to the president? And he said, listen, I'm a Jewish guy, kid. I grew up in Romania. I'm, not a, I, I'm afraid of the police. What's the president going to do to me? He's not going to have me executed. <laughs> I'm afraid of policemen. So, uh, but, so Reagan, and actually Nancy Reagan thought he had made a big error and told him, you know, just tell President Cole that you can't do it. But Reagan felt that he had given his word. Then he tried to convince Wiesel to accompany him, and they would also go to Bergen-Belsen, and Wiesel wanted nothing to do with it. And he was very, very strongly criticized for that action. Then they asked the Israeli Prime Minister, Shimon Peres, what do you think of what Reagan did? Now, Peres was in a very ticklish position because it's easy enough for a congressman to say, as some people did, they really said, you know, terrible things, this chosen to be a heartless, you know. But what happens if you are the Prime Minister of Israel and the, and the President of your closest ally 
does something that you're really not happy about and you really do think was wrong, but how do you say it? And I think he came up with a brilliant answer to keep in mind if you ever have to comment when a friend of yours has done something really wrong. He said, when a friend makes a mistake, okay, good, thank you. When a friend makes a, well, you made a mistake, okay. <laughs> when a friend makes a mistake, the mistake remains a mistake and the friend remains a friend. I thought it was a brilliant comment because he asserted all of us have or will have the experience of realizing someone we love or respect has done something wrong. And sometimes we're forced to publicly comment. And these moments can be painful, but his simple but profound statement struck me as an ingenious way to capture the various complexities at stake in such a situation. Acknowledge the friendship and acknowledge the mistake. Neither doesn't have to cancel out the reality of the, of, of the other. Obviously, when I've been reading books for years, this issue has interested me. So when I read books, I just am curious when I come across a situation you know, that deals with this. And maybe based on the years that I spent when I was living in California, I always was interested in acting. And I read uh, a number of different memoirs written by the British actor, Michael Caine. You know, Kane has been in, Kane now is in his late 80s. He's been in movies for seven decades. He actually earned Academy Award nominations for films in five of those seven decades. But he's also written a number of books about, uh, uh, and he's quite forthright about moral struggles in which he is engaged. And one of them has been with his temper. I used to lose my temper. I'd fly off the candle quickly in a work situation. Then I worked on a picture called The Last Valley by James Clavell, who had been a prisoner of the Japanese during World War II. James looks like an Englishman, but he thinks like a Japanese. I lost my temper one day and James just looked at me and let me finish ranting and raving. And he said, come with me, Mike, let's go around the corner and sit down. He sat me down and talked to me about the Japanese theory of losing face. If you start to scream and shout, you look like a fool, you feel like a fool, and you earn everyone's disrespect. And then he says, I've never lost my temper in a work situation again. Now, given that Kane has appeared in 160 films, I find it hard to believe that he never lost his temper in a work situation. And there are times when it can be appropriate to lose your temper. But since it is virtually inevitable that we will at some point lose our temper, Kane adds on a rule that I really believe we should never violate. Never under any circumstances shout at anybody who is lower on the ladder than you are, which means to phrase it a bit differently, never scream at somebody who can't scream back at you. He said to do so, as Cain would say, is to take a monstrously unfair advantage. I remember even when my children were growing up, it's very rare that I, that I would scream, but I remember, and then they would sometimes scream back. And you know, I, the parents say, you don't, you can never scream at your father. I'd say, listen, if I scream, they can scream. It's to take an, and I, I'm sure there are people here who would disagree with me, but I just thought never under any circumstance shout at anybody who is lower on the ladder than you are. In other words, somebody who can't scream back. I'm just going to give you a couple of more examples of things that I find that are unusual. If you want to open it up a little q and I'm always happy to do that. Here's an example I drew from friends of mine, what I called moral imagination in the last weeks of one's life. There was a couple I was friendly with for very many years. Uh, when I lived in LA and when I'd come out to LA, uh, Donna and Spencer Gilbert. 
And then Spencer got very sick. He was in his early 60s. Donna was probably about four years younger. I mentioned that because it's going to be relevant to the story. And uh, he had a, a rare form of leukemia that advanced so rapidly that the doctors, you know, without saying it probably that bluntly, but made it pretty clear to him that they were going to try some treatments, but unless there was a miracle, he would probably die within a few weeks. And uh, I remember during that period of time, I tried to call him every day and we pray together every day. And then I remember he was a very thoughtful man. It was during that period, my son Ben had his bar mitzvah and he said, listen, for the next four days, don't call me. You have to have your mind on something else. But during those last weeks of his life, they had six children and he called in each of his six children individually, told them how much, you know, he loved them and, you know, all those things. And it was a very, an extremely close-knit family. But then what he said to them, you all know that your mother and I have had a very loving relationship. But as your mother is still a young woman, I hope she finds love again in her life. And if she does, I want you to know how happy that will make. Donna years later really did fall in love with a man named Paul Van. She has told me how remarkable it was that Spencer did that. She said, he loved me, I loved him, and he wanted me to feel love again. And if that happened, he would be happy. We all know cases of children who got very upset when their widowed parent remarried and felt somehow it was a betrayal. And then I've always had a great interest in American history. It was my minor in my graduate studies at Columbia. I passed my orals, but I never wrote my doctorate, which always bothered my father. But, uh, but you know what happens? If you start doing popular writing, it's not easy to go back into academic writing. And we all know the amount, the, you know, a great amount of publicity that was given in recent years to Thomas Jefferson, who carried on a very long relationship with Sally Hemings, who was a black woman who was his slave. And obviously it doesn't lead to a great increased respect because he either started the relationship with her when she was 14 or 16. But I found out an interesting thing. Jefferson became a widow when he, a widower when he was 39 and his wife was 34. She, he had had children with her and she did not handle pregnancy medically well. And during her last pregnancy, it looked like her and it really was. She, so she died at 30 and before she died, she made Jefferson swear to her that he would never marry. She had been raised by a stepmother Remember, in days, a lot of women still died in childbirth, you know, so it wasn't, and she, and apparently it had not been a good experience for her. And so, as I said, you know, he was 39 time. That was a pretty young age, you know, to have to undertake. I'm not saying, I don't know if that had anything to do with his relationship with Sally Hemings, but, but I just think of what Spencer, you know, did as an act of imagination. Okay, this will be my last story, but I have great stories still, but... Okay, uh, I had years ago, I had occasion to spend uh, a whole Shabbat afternoon with a man named Brad Anderson, who, as you can maybe guess from his guest, his name, Brad Anderson, is not Jewish. He's actually a very religious Christian. He's well known in the business world. He was considered the person who really established the company Best Buy. And uh, we were at, I was actually with my friend Dennis, we were, had spent an afternoon together, and his Christian beliefs, you know, were clearly 
very strong. So I am. Your Christianity has it affected the way you do? You do? No, and I thought I'd probably get, you know, of course, you know, I feel the obligation to be very honest, but he actually had something very specific to say. He said, yes, it probably affected the most important decision I made when I came to Best Buy. He said, all of our salesmen were working on commissions. They had, you know, small salary, primarily agents. He said, I insisted we raise every salary and eliminate commissions. He said, I am convinced it is impossible for a person to be fully honest if they're working on commissions. If they're thinking when they sell a product to a person, I'm gonna earn a lot more from their product, either because it's a company that pays higher commissions or it's an expensive product. People really questioned it because a big deal was made out of it at the time. And would Best Buy really find and it experienced its great uh, growth in the years that followed that. Again, I see that as an act of moral imagination. So we're seeing in all these areas what can happen. I am so excited. It's, it, it can just be so helpful. Should I do another? Yeah. Okay. 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 I really will stop there. The story they tell about the Israeli, uh, when a young new member of parliament asked him if he should speak on a certain issue, and the Israeli didn't think the guy had that much to say. He said, I think it's better if you remain quiet and people say, why didn't he speak up? Than if you speak up and say, why did he speak? You know? But anyway, it occurred to me one day that if it was really, really important to you, that your name be known by millions of people in one week. If one week from today, you wanted your name really well known. The only way you could guarantee that that would happen is if you did something very evil. There's no very good act you could do that would automatically make you very well known. Okay, maybe if you're Warren Buffett and you announce that you're giving $50 billion, but by and large, there's no such action. And so I once, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. And one of the editors at the Times, who was a woman that I've been friendly with, Barry Weiss, said, this is good. I'm going to bring it into the editorial board, uh, that they stop mentioning the names of people who carry out mass murders. And they don't publish their photographs. And I said, I can't guarantee that that will lead uh, in, to discouraging many people, but it'll certainly discourage some. You know, and she brought it into the editorial board and they said, nah, it's not going to happen. We're not going to do it. Now, the truth of the matter is there is a time when journalism doesn't mention someone's name and people think it's by law, but it's not by law. It's by a journalistic sense of ethics. They don't mention the name of a woman who was sexual. Of course, I think we all think that that's very appropriate and they certainly don't publish a photo. But I think a lot of the people who carry out these verbal acts, they want fame. And I remember my friend, Abram Tversky, the psychiatrist and also Hasidic, was once asked to see the son of a prominent man in Milwaukee, I think it was Abe Milwaukee or Pittsburgh, who had been arrested at an armed robbery. And when went to the jail, the, the young man's first question to him was, did you see my photo on the front page of the paper today? And, you know, it's not only in cases like that. Uh, and yet, do you remember, well, if anybody's going to remember, it's going to be the people here, the extensive scrutiny applied to the lives of Rick Harris and Dylan Klebold in the aftermath of the 1999 Columbine massacre. Columbine is, of course, a suburb here. 
in which murdered 12 fellow students and one teacher. Did all the coverage yield insights that as a result led to finance such events? Just the opposite. The nonstop publicity seems to have motivated more pathetic hateful people to such crime. You see, a lot of us in this room want to be famous, but if you have a conscience, you don't want to just be famous for having done something very terrible. And if the most evil people among us would know that their names would not become known, Nicholas Cruz, who murdered 17 students in Parkland, Florida, was known to have been speaking before of a mass shooting in New York, and he declared, man, I can do so much better. And wants to become known for doing better, and by his sight, he did do better. The same a man named Seifulo Seipab, a truck driver, mowed down eight people on a New York City street. Eight people were murdered, he injured 15 others. The reports were, he got injured, but he was not killed, that he went to be rejoicing from his hospital bed with all the press coverage he was seeding. He was seeding. He was receiving. That's why I was so moved a few years ago by the response of Jacinda Ardern, the uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, when 51 Muslims were murdered two mosques right next to each other by one. And what did she say? And I think it was found, this was in 2019. I plead with all New Zealanders, I implore you, speak the names of those who were lost extremists, but he will, when I speak, be nameless. He sought many things from his act of terror, but one was notoriety. That is why you will never hear me mention his name. Look, I mean, obviously names like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, we're gonna know because we want children to grow up to never be intrigued by such people. But how many of you know the Jewish tradition of what you're supposed to say when you mention the name of a very terrible person? Yes, uh, there's an expression I grew up. Hitler's last name when I was growing up was Hitler Yamach Shemovizichrono. May his name and memory be blotted out because you know we want it. Okay, I just realized I'm going to tell one more story because no, because I don't want to end on that particular story. Okay, okay, let me find what's a good one. Okay, here's just a practical one. It's very very short. I have a friend, Daniel. Daniel was my student and he wanted to honor me. Uh, I knew him when he was 19, I was 32. He said I was the adult male friend he ever had in his life. And Daniel made Aliyah, he went on, he was Israel's ambassador to England. But he listened to this advice. For many of us here, it might apply to children or maybe to grandchildren. He pointed out to me that when picking a school for their child, most parents pay very close attention to the kindergarten and first grade classes and to these classes teachers. They rarely pay attention to something equally and perhaps more important, the deportment of the eighth grade graduating students. That however, will likely give them a better indication than kindergarten and first grade of how their child might turn out at that school. I just thought it was a remarkable insight and one I had never heard. Okay, I'd love to open up for our discussion. So much food for thought. Thank you so much. So when I take some questions, I'm going to repeat them into the mic, not because you all can't hear it, but for our friends on Zoom so they can hear it as well. Um, and uh, I'll, But I'll take the privilege of the first question and I'll take one from Zoom as well. I just want to remember seeing some college students here from CU Boulder 
that the first time I heard you speak, I was, I was in Austin, Texas as a college student. And I remember thinking, huh, I had been taught Jewish laws, I've been taught Jewish rules, I've been taught Jewish holidays and values, but I, I hadn't been taught, and I couldn't name it as moral imagination yet, but I hadn't been taught to, to imagine. So thank you for that. Um, so th the first question I want to ask you is, how do we learn Torah differently? How do we teach Torah differently? How do we raise our kids differently? How do we raise grandkids differently? Through the prism, trying to cultivate moral imagination. And so part of that answer, I think you've already made clear, which is storytelling. Yes. Um, and I wonder how else do we think about those moments as educators and parents? Jews are very proud of Jewish success in many areas. You know, it's been pointed out, there are other groups that have also had great success, but they tend to be in science or in medicine or something else. Jews have had success in many areas. You know, so much so that I once computed that statistically, if one Jew won a Nobel Prize, any one Nobel Prize every 30 years, that would statistically be what should happen. How many of you, number one, I'm curious, every year when they announce the Nobel Prizes, look to see if there were Jewish names? Okay. How many of you, if in any given year, there is no Jewish Nobel Prize winner, automatically assume it's anti-Semitism? <laughs> so, okay. So guess what? In that regard, Jews have been successful because they've made it very, very clear that that's successful. But if you hear a Jewish parent speaking about his children, they don't give the same status to the child's being good. I always knew when my children were going up that that would be what I'd be most proud of, which is not to say I wouldn't praise other things. Other things should be praised. And children, you want your children to have a good self-image. But there is so much emphasis in Jewish life on professional success or on wealth. And that people raised in such an environment, that's going to be what matters most to them. So if you ask Jewish children, what do they think matters most to their parents, they will usually emphasize that, that sort of success. And even though the parents are, oh no, the most important thing is me is that he, he or she grows up to be a good person, but the way they prioritize things, it doesn't really accept that. And by the way, even in religious environments, so the big thing is to be a Talmud Chacham, is to be regarded as a scholar. But even there, there one of the most important books on moral self-improvement that was ever written in Jewish life and a book I remember because I still have a copy of when I was 19 at a yeshiva, Karambi Avna, Israel, a marked up copy with my notes is called the Mesilas Yesharim, the Path of Fright. And he writes in the front of the book, he makes a very interesting point. He said, when people want to excel in Jewish life, they usually will pick Talmudic tractates that can show their brilliance, but people assume that ethics is pretty obvious and people will not think they're brilliant if they make interesting insights into ethical issue. And by and large, that was not the case. I remember when I was at Yeshiva University, my favorite teacher there was Yitz Greenberg. And uh, Yitz considered himself very much a disciple of Israel Salanter. And, and Salanter though really did do that. There's a story about Salanter I'm gonna put in, in my book that a student of his, a former student of his, once invited him to share a Shabbat meal there at his house. 
And you know, the student knew that the rabbi would trust the kashras, everything would be fine. But in order to entice Rabbi Salanter, he says, I want you to know, between each course, we sing Zmirot, we sing Sabbath songs, and we carry on Torah discussions. And it goes on for a long time. Salanter gets back in touch with the man, and he says to him, I'll come to your house, but only on one condition, that there be no singing of souls and no discussion of Torah. The student, needless to say, was puzzled, but it would be an honor to have Rabbi Salanter. So Salanter came, and the cook was serving one meal, you know, one course after another. And finally, at the end of the meal, the student couldn't restrain himself. He said, what did you find so wrong with the way we were doing it? He said, call in the cook. The cook comes in and he says to the cook, I have to apologize to you. I put you under a great strain because you had to keep bringing out one course after another. He said, apologize to me. Rabbi, I'm thankful to you. This is going to be the first time I'm going to get home on a Friday night before midnight. <laughs> the woman left and Rabbi Salanta then turned to the table. He said, now let's talk about Torah. Now let's sing songs. So again, in any situation, you, you look for the young, and if kids are raised on stories like that, you know, it, it, would, it would be great. So that's why, you know, that's really what I'm trying to do. Years ago, I wrote a book called The Book of Jewish Values. And the book tried to come up with an ethical activity for every day of the year. And one of the things that motivated me to write it was because as a general rule, when you hear that somebody's become more Jewish or more religious, it's usually always spoken of in ritual terms. I'm not saying that ethics are denied, but, you know, oh, so-and-so became religious means he keeps Shabbos, keeps kosher, and ethics aren't given that same uh, preeminence that I think they deserve. We have a rich tradition of it. Uh, and you know, so that's what I think could play a very key role. And we, I remember years ago when Lincoln Square Synagogue honored at their annual dinner, uh, a woman who had been the secretary there for like 30 years. No, and I remember I was struck. Listen, we know why wealthy philanthropic people get a lot of the honors. I, you know, you'd be stupid if you just said, no, you should never do that because obviously these people have the means to help the organization, but we have to make sure that we find ways to honor a whole host of people and make it clear that we really hold them in esteem, that we're not just doing it to do it, but to really of awe, of awe for people's goodness. And that's why I think that parent children deserve the highest praise of their children for when their children do kind acts, because parents usually reserve their highest praise for the child's achievements. My son, Sean, named her his grandfather, Shmuel. I'd love to go sometime into a Catholic church and see some kid named Shmuel in honor of his grandfather, Sean. Okay, you know, so they get it for their academic achievements or their athletic ability, their cultural achievements, you know, their piano abilities or their dancing, and also for their looks, particularly in the case of girls. You know, that's that. So what happens to a child who's not exceptionally bright or exceptionally talented in other ways or exceptionally physically attractive? You know, the parents, oh, but so-and-so is really a good kid from which it's apparent 
that being a kid is not something to be proud about. So it, it, it requires a different sort of mindset, but I, I think it's a very, very important thing that we start shifting in that direction. Beautiful. Here's one of our questions from Zoom, which maybe inspired your Hollywood connections. Okay. Do you have any reaction to Will Smith, Chris Rock interaction at the Oscars? How would, how would you have? No, I've been getting nonstop calls asking me for my opinion on it. <laughs> I don't know. My wife says that she read somewhere, so I don't know even though if this is true, that Will Smith is this an interesting sidelight. Obviously, what he did was, was a wrong thing to do, very wrong thing to do. But that she had read somewhere that he had grown up in a household where his father abused his mother. And, and so, you know, for a child who witnesses their mother being abused and then could become very sensitive to the issue of feeling that their wife was, was being abused. But obviously, you just don't do that because it's a barrier you don't want to cross. So how should he be disciplined now? I don't know. I, you know, it, it raises an interesting question. If he keeps on being really apologetic and it's clear he recognized that he did something wrong, should he be forgiven? Yeah, I think if there's a sense that he does. Obviously, we know that some, you know, it's like, remember when that happened recently with Whoopi Goldberg? And, you know, she made an insensitive comment uh, concerning the Holocaust, which obviously really sensitive about but I really believe that she was sincere when she apologized and if you're in now what Will Smith did was on another level but if you're in public life long enough sooner or later you're not going to some insensitive students are so powerful you know unless they're neither meat nor neither flesh nor milk you know but if you're going to be interesting you're going to say uh, insensitive things but obviously establishing, if he would not have been severely reprimanded as he has been, it would establish, I think, a very bad thing in a society that's already too violent that you feel you can respond to an insult uh, by public slapping somebody. So that's what I say. I don't think I have anything startlingly new to say. I'm curious, does anybody else have any reactions that in some ways differ from the common reactions. You know what, I'll look it up. I wanna see the clip because I'm not familiar with it. Good, okay, th anybody else? I mean, obviously it became the most talked about, uh, you know, the, the most talked about issue. By the way, you know, it's funny. You mentioned the title of Why the Jews and the subtitle is the most accurate predictor of human evil, which I think historically it really has been. But now we're in an odd situation where it, for the, one of the first times I can remember, it isn't. Because I think Putin is an absolutely vile person, but apparently he's not an anti-Semite. Uh, you know, he's claimed to some, uh, to a rabbi that he knows that when he was growing up, he was very poor and there was a religious Jewish family that used to give him food. And it's known that he bought a house for a woman, I think who had been his teacher in Israel and he visited her when he visited Israel. Now, does this make me feel better, Putin? No, because what he's bombing maternity, and I mean, he's just so horrible. So I, I don't know if there's anything much to learn to learn from that. But in general, that's been the case. People who were bad to the Jews were not wonderful uh, to other people. I have no idea about Will Smith and the Jews. <laughs> Thank you. So we have a question from Rabbi Chetovsky, which I'll repeat after him. Yeah. 
Does moral imagination, we heard many stories of how it leads us to be more generous, more expansive. Does moral imagination ever move us to a less expansive a place, perhaps less generous, more of a retreat? Yeah, it certainly does. Particularly when we're dealing, when we have to take part of the oppressed. Can't be too simple. Well, look, I mean, it's what I was just speaking about with Putin. He's a terrible, terrible human being. And what he's done, I believe, is, uh, is beyond forgivable. So, you know, I'm not, or even what I said about Will Smith, does it make me a little more comprehending if what I had read was true about growing up in a household, you know, where he saw his mother abused? Yes, but it doesn't, you can't end up letting that excuse the behavior. You know, that's why in criminal trials, it can be, some people can come out of very bad backgrounds and come out and do very, very terrible things. But you know what? I remember there was an old song. I was once, during the year that Deborah and I were living in Boulder. God, this is not a story I think I've ever had occasion to tell. During the time we were living in Boulder, you know, so we were taking trips in the area. We went to one of the national parks and I started speaking to a person. I'm by nature not particularly shy. So, you know, I, was, I always like to learn things from people. And I asked, the, you know, at a certain point, I asked the man his name and his last name was Ox, O-C-H-S. So I said to him, oh, are you related to the family of the New York Times? Because Adolf Ox, you know, was the owner of the New York Times. He said, no, but I'm actually related to somebody you also might've heard of. My brother was a songwriter, Phil Oaks, who, as you know, really wrote some very, very important songs and uh, unfortunately committed suicide when he was 35. But I always remember a line he wrote in one of his songs, trying to encourage people to rise up not in a revolutionary way, but to really confront the society. And one of the lines in the song was, for every bad thing that's happened to you has happened to better men. You know, and people should not use that as an excuse. If something bad, it, one of the most remarkable teachings in the Torah, I think, is the repeated usage of the line about oppressed and those who are hurt well, because you were slaves in Egypt. Generally, when people have been very badly treated, it ends up becoming an excuse for them not being so good to other people, you know, that they learned heartlessness. But in the Torah, it keeps, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and you therefore should know the heart of the stranger, and you should know what it is to be oppressed. And I've always found that, you know, that's a remarkable teaching to, you know, what's always been interesting to me is, you know, starting around 1900, when they found the Code of Hammurabi, and there were striking parallels to the Torah. So, you know, everybody started thinking, well, I mean, this is the source of the Torah or this, you know, and it, to many people, it like diminished the Torah. And then I remember I read a, a remarkable essay by a late professor of religion at Princeton named Walter Kaufman whose name is not widely known anymore. If you can ever get a hold of a book, you can get it on Amazon called The Faith of a Heretic. Because basically he said, listen, I'm not gonna ever really embrace one religion, but if I had to embrace one, it would be Judaism. And, uh, and you know, he really offers reasons. And he compares the Torah to the Code of Hammurabi, but he points out, you know, what are, the, what are differences in the Torah? If it was in my mind, I'd start listing a lot of them, uh, but one of them, for example, was the tremendous emphasis it put on every individual having value. 
In the Code of Hammurabi, it's a specific law in the code. If a builder builds a house and the house collapses and the son, the owner's son or daughter is killed, based on which based on which gender was killed, if it was the son or the daughter, so you you kill, you execute the builder's son or daughter, because children were the property of their parents. Not only is that law not in the Bible, but it says, lo yum tu, there's a direct quote in the Torah, children shall not be put to death for the sins of their parents, nor parents for the sins of their children. Believe me, you know, there are people who are tempted in those cases, like, you know, when you have terrible things happen, like what just happened in Israel, you know, where a man went and just murdered five people. And you wonder what sort of house was he raised in? You know, what did he come from? But there are a number of examples. I wish I could think of more right now. That's the one that popped into my head, you know? And so that whole thing or the notion of the stranger, yes. So important point you made. Okay, we'll take one question from here, then one more from our, our Zoom. Yes, please. Beautiful. So for our friends in, on, on Zoom, um, does the studying of Torah and the performance of mitzvot um, lead us to be more ethical? And can one be fully ethical without those things? Look, obviously they're fully ethical, just to cite one example, you know, non-Jews without those things. Uh, yeah, I, the interesting thing about ritual observance in Judaism is that I think your intentions influence it. In other words, if you understand from the laws of Kashrut that there are some things that are always unkosher and some things that are always permitted, it's gonna transfer into your own behavior. I think you'll be less apt to rationalize things. I also think, and this is important, and believe me, there are no shortage of people who disagree with me on this. What is the power of the belief in God? The belief in God is the belief that there is a higher source than we. Does that mean that religious people will always be good? Certainly not. And it certainly doesn't mean that non-religious people will not be good. But what it does mean is that people who believe that there is a God above human beings believe that there is an independent standard of right and wrong. In other words, everybody here believes murder is wrong. But if I asked you to actually really stand up for 20 minutes and show why murder is wrong, assuming that there is no higher source in the world, it's not that easy actually to do. So you say, well, we don't want to be murdered. Okay, that's true. You know, Hitler didn't want to be murdered. Stalin didn't want to be murdered. And yet they could, without any compunctions, murder many people. It, it, it's, it's not self-evident why certain things are wrong. And throughout history, what has been self-evident to many people is that if they had power, they could use that power and they could misuse that power. So it's good every once in a while to think, there are times I've restrained from doing things. I do have a, it so happens I have a strong belief in an afterlife. And I do have a feeling that I am accountable to another source. That the fact that I could get away with something, you know, is not sufficient. So I think it's hard. I remember when I was in Russia in 73, one of the, I, I, I went in 73 with a friend and it was at a time when Russian Jews were in a bad situation. And it was very hard to be optimistic. And I was meeting, you know, with dissidents. I, remember I was in cities that probably many of you never even heard of. How many of you have ever heard of Khabarovsk? Boris is from Russia, okay? I'm not gonna get away with anything. He even heard of Decor. No, he heard it. It so happens that Boris and I probably are cousins because we 
both our families both come from Decor, a shtetl that had like four or 500 Jews. And I don't normally run into people who've ever heard of Decor. But okay, so, uh, okay. And then we were in Irkutsk and then we were in Novosibirsk, which has a lot of scientists. And, and then we were in Moscow. And in Moscow, we had a meeting with Andrei Sakharov. What happened was, uh, we had been at the house, oh God, I'm forgetting the person, one of the very leading dissidents. And, and one of the people there was the guy who at the time was Sakharov's English translator, because Sakharov never developed uh, a, you know, good enough English, so he always needed a translator. And this guy then you know, got out of Russia, and then I think his next translator for a while was Natan, you know, Anatoly Sharansky. I remember when we met with Sakharov, it was, this man had unbelievable guts. You know, all the Russian Jews I was meeting with at that time, we would bring with us a children's game. There's a children's game where you can write on a board and then when you lift up the paper, the words disappear. And, you know, so when we were talking about, everybody knew that they were being, their conversations were being recorded. And I remember I showed it to Sakharov. He says, they know everything I'm saying. I have nothing at this point to hide. And his last years, he, had, he really had some hard, hard last years. It's very... It's very rare that I felt I was in the presence of such a great man. I remember he came to the door. I remember he carried over chairs for us. He brought out tea for us. Uh, when he turned against communism, he had been a very wealthy man. All of the money he had in those days, I think the number he told me was he gave like 144,000 rubles to be used for cancer research. But the great sadness of his life, his children were communists. You know, he didn't necessarily have a mode of transmitting to them. Their father was a moral giant. And one of the effective things is, you know, if you do it, so let's say you grow up in a household where when you say a nasty thing about somebody, you're taught that this is Lashon Hara, this is not a, a, a proper way to speak. It, it has a little more power. And I think when it's done in a collective manner, it could have a lot more power. So a lot of people, listen, just as there are people, if I ever had to ask God one question, I'd say, why did you create people who had sadistic inclinations? You know, there's enough problems with free will, you know, without having to enjoy being cruel. But, uh, but I think it's important really to, to, to feel that, there is someone before whom we're going to have to give an accounting. People feel that when they drive. If you know that a police car is in back of you, you don't start making illegal U-turns and other things. Uh, so I always say a person who's really bad can't really honestly believe that there is a God who cares. I mean, you have to believe that there is a God and that he cares about it. I'll end with this one thought. Uh, Nachman of Bratzlov was an early Hasidic Rebbe. He died at a very young age. He wasn't even 40. Uh, and he was a great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism. And he used to say, if you're not going to be a better person tomorrow than you are today, then what need do you have for tomorrow? I once ended a speech like that, and somebody said, Joseph, that's a real downer way to end the speech. <laughs> so I'm going to rephrase Rabbi Nachman. I wish all of you a good today and an even better tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Talushkin. This was an incredibly inspiring talk, and I hope we can all move it from inspiring to something to integrate in our lives, that indeed we are thinking tonight about something we can do tomorrow. 
and do something different and we are imagining that possibility. If you enjoyed tonight, I hope you'll also join us tomorrow night. Yes, he'll be in Scottsdale, Arizona, but also on Zoom. So our, um, we hope you'll join us for a different, a different topic tomorrow night. Uh, we wanna thank our dear friends at BMH uh, BJ for hosting tonight, Rabbi Khatavsky and staff. I wanna thank our colleague, Zach, who is our staff here in Colorado and Pam Beeler and, um, and Eddie Chavez Calderon working in technology and all of you who joined and all of our friends and our fellows who are here tonight. And um, before I invite, we'll invite you tonight to a book signing. And if you wanna make a book purchase with Rabbi Tolushkin and some dessert in the other room where you can chat with him more. But first, some final words from uh, Rabbi Kataz. I do wanna thank a few people. Uh, we, had, we have three sponsors to help underwrite um, the costs for this evening and our VBM program. Two of them are, have asked to remain anonymous, uh, but one of them is listening via Zoom together with his wife from uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and that is uh, Sheldon Hayaton. Uh, he's a regular at Arminian, and uh, he is a big fan of Rabbi Tulushkin, and he and his wife wanted to help underwrite tonight, and they did, and they wanted to thank him and our two anonymous sponsors. And without any further ado, there are refreshments and books available and a signing available as well. Thank you again for coming here this evening.